we are in a series on hope, and uh, I want to thank everybody for the encouraging feedback from last Sunday. We had our first uh, message in the morning, second part in the evening, and now here's part three today. But uh, I, I was encouraged because somebody sent me a link or to my wife, and then she showed it to me. Thought I might be interested in this uh, sweatshirt that uh, somebody found, Hope Dealer. And uh, so, so I was thinking about buying that and going down to, you know, downtown Lodi, rocking that around there, the mean streets of downtown Lodi. Um, so now, but it's nice. Thank you, Marina, for sending that. I, I was, I'm thinking now we have merch for the message. So if you need to get that, come see me. I'll show you where you can get that. You can be a hope dealer too. Actually, tonight at 6 p.m., we're going to be back. We're talking about hope again. And tonight we actually are talking about how to share hope with others. And so you'll learn how to be a hope dealer. So come back tonight. Last Sunday morning, we talked about the nature of Christian hope, what it is, and how we underestimate the power of hope. And in the evening, we talked about specific ways that God uses hope to transform our lives. Now this morning, we're going to look at how to get this hope, how to have hope. What do we do to get this? Remember, that God has called Christian hope an anchor for the soul, Hebrews 6, 19, an anchor for the soul. I love the imagery of hope as an anchor. Uh, this, this past summer, we, uh, our, our family wanted to do something fun, and as most of you know, we have a lot of boys. Uh, we have six kids, five of them are boys, and they're all older, and, and uh, they are all eager to do something fun. And so we said, let's do something fun this summer. We've done this a few times before, and that is to go out on the lake and rent a boat and uh, go water, you know, to go tubing. Um, and so I was looking up where to rent boats, and I noticed that when you try to rent the boat from some personal people, they have those websites you can do that, that some of them were saying, you're going to need a boater's card, basically like a driver's license for, for boaters. So any of you boaters out there, you may have that already. And um, so I thought, well, maybe I should get one of those. Now, it turns out if you go rent a boat at a marina, they don't require that. But anyway, I thought, well, it still would be a good idea. So I want to be as safe as possible went there and went online, and you can just take, all, take the test online, and you can become a certified boater. And uh, so it's been a very long time since I studied, uh, you know, anything to, to take a test. And so I, I went through it, um, and thank the Lord, C's get degrees, right? C's get degrees. I barely snuck by, and I got my, my boater card. So I am an official boater, all right? <laughs> feel very proud about that. But here's the thing. I... I, I one of the chapters in there was about anchors. And I had no idea that there were so many types of anchors. Uh, put the picture up there. I brought one for you. Uh, if you guys, there we go. Types of boat anchors. All right, you got your claw anchor, your delta anchor, my favorite one, the fluke anchor, <laughs> grapnel anchor, mushroom. I'm, uh, so I was looking at all those, and I thought, oh, my goodness. I, so I had to, had to do a little test on that. But just so that you know, as soon as the test was over, I forgot everything I learned, and I am, I am okay on paper, but in reality, I am the worst possible guy you want to take out with you on your boat if you're looking for a boater. But that's my point this morning with all this. I am not an anchor expert. 
But God is. God knows the perfect kind of anchor for the human soul. The soul is the deepest part of you and me. It's where, where our thoughts come from, where our emotions come from. And he knows what can anchor our mind, our will, our desires, our emotions. Where we think, where we feel. And that one thing that can be an anchor for that soul of yours is called hope. That's the anchor. God told us in Hebrews chapter 6 there to lay hold of this hope. Because it is an anchor for your soul. Sure, both sure and steadfast. Now I hope, uh, or this, this hope is the thing that God uses that will stabilize your mind and your emotions in the absolute worst of storms. Now remember what hope is. It is always future focused. Hope is faith related. It's similar to faith where we're trusting God, but it's future focused. I gave you a definition of Christian hope. We're going to have it up here for you. Christian hope is a life-shaping certainty that our ultimate future is the eternal love and glory of God in the new heavens and the new earth. It's, it is a life-shaping certainty. It is not, I hope this will happen the way we use hope. When the Bible uses hope, it's saying, I am certain about something. I am certain this will happen in the future. It is a joyful expectation. And when you're certain about your future, it has tremendous impact on how you think and live right now. See, I can put up with just about anything when my hope tank is full. We gave an illustration last week about you, you put two people next to each other working in a very harsh environment, a horrible job. You tell one, I'm going to pay you $20,000. You pay, tell the other, I'm going to pay you $20 million. Are those guys going to have different experiences, the exact same job, exact same situation? Yes, because there's something they're looking forward to in the future. There's a joyful certainty, and it changes everything, changes how you go to work, changes how you live your life when you're looking at the, a joyful certainty in the future. See, if I have hope, I have an emotional stability. I have mental toughness. I have spiritual power. I have less fear. I have less worry. I have less daily annoyances. I'm more joyful. I'm more upbeat. I'm more positive, and I can rub off on the people around me. That's what hope can do. That's what God's hope can do. And that's all from just a full confidence in God taking care of my future. And he's got me. Now, not everyone has a certainty about the future. Many people are living without hope. Eastern religions offer no hope at all with their endless reincarnations. Humanists uh, have to try and create their own future, and there's really no positive uh, certainty in their future. Evolutionists have no comfort in their future at all. There's just nothing. But God has given every believer in Christ a 200% guarantee about what will happen to you. If you put your trust in Christ, we, we looked at last week, Hebrews chapter 6 says, you have the promise of God and you have the oath of God, and it is, he cannot lie. It is a 200% guarantee. Folks, listen, you're in better hands than in all state, okay? And, and listen, and all the insurance companies uh, in California are leaving apparently, but guess what? God is not leaving. God is not leaving you. In fact, he said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. We are so blessed this is an amazing thing God has done. Hope. You can be certain about your future. Now, but how does this, how do we get this life-shaping certainty? How do we get it so much that it just settles down deep inside of us? 
And how do we stay filled up with this hope each and every day, especially when it appears that there is no earthly reason at all to hope? When things are dark, when things are painful, when you don't like what's going on. Now, before I launch into the how, let me talk about let me talk to those of you who might be facing a hopeless situation right now. Inevitably, there are going to be things that come up for all of us that are going to shake our hope. I'm amazed how everything can be just going so well in life, and then a problem just comes out of nowhere. I mean out of nowhere. I'm going to tell you a little story here, and this, is, this was in a, a column in the New York Times magazine, and it's been told with many variations. All right, a crew was picked up in the Sea of Japan because their, shi uh, their ship had sunk. And they got all these uh, Japanese sailors, and they pulled them in, and they asked them, each two of one, what caused your ship to sink? And to a man, every sailor said, a cow fell from the sky came and smashed into our boat, he landed in our boat, smashed the deck, sank our vessel. And the officials heard what they said, and they said, you're lying. And, but every single one said the same thing. They said, all right, <laughs> these guys have had too much sake. <laughs> There's some, we need to get the breathalyzer out. We, this, this is ridiculous. They put them in prison. Now, the sailors remained behind bars for several weeks, discouraged, not knowing what was going to go on. And then the Russian Air Force called. And the Russians, they prefaced their remarks with this. They said, we're not going to take any responsibility for this. Then they informed the Japanese authorities that the crew, their, their crew had a cargo plane in Siberia, and they noticed there was just a, a, a random cow wandering around out there. They picked up that cow and put it on their cargo plane. They weren't, you know, expecting uh, live cargo, and they didn't have everything set for that. So in the middle of the flight, the cow was just going nuts in the airplane, and, and so they finally just opened the hatch and let him out over the sea. <laughs> the boat never saw it coming. All right, so I told you that story, but the story has been debunked <laughs> as an urban legend. But isn't that a great story? That's a really good story. And it was printed in the New York Times Magazine. It really was, even if it's fiction. But uh, let, let me just tell you, sometimes... That's how life feels. It honestly does. I read that and I thought, that's exactly how life feels to me sometimes. Random problems. Where did this come from? A cow dropping out of nowhere. This is not what I expected. This is not what life was supposed to be. This is so, this is so out, of, out of left field. Unexpected bills, health problems, another dumb political decision, other people saying and doing hurtful things to me, my own negative thoughts. When these things drop in your boat, how do you respond? Uh, let me give you one option. Here's how you could respond. You get something that rocks the boat. You get something that just is shaking your hope. You could stop trusting God. That is one option. You could stop believing that God has a good plan for you. You could stop, you could stop trusting the Lord. You could start fearing your future, and just go into worry mode and fear mode. You could choose to complain that, that God uh, is not making a better life for you. Sure, you could do all of that. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. 
after God delivered them out of Egypt. Remember that? He miraculously delivered them from slavery, showed them his power again and again and again. He gave them a hope of a promised land that he would bring them to. But as soon as the enemy was closing in on them, guess what they did? They freaked out. As soon as they ran low on water, they freaked out. As soon as they ran low on food, they freaked out. When Moses left to go talk to God up on the mountain, they freaked out and started worshiping other gods. God was so patient, but he finally had had enough. I want to show you a couple verses here. Numbers 14 and verse 22. Look at what God did. Because all those men, he says, which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. You know, complaining and not trusting God is a serious thing. Having unbelief before God is actually something that God does not like. Listen, God was, he said, listen, I've been patient. I showed you miracle after miracle. I poured out my glory. I gave you so much. I showed you what I could do over and over again. But I'm not going to let you now go into the promised land because you have refused to trust me. He was going to cause them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died, and then he would only allow then their children to go into the promised land. Now, what's the lesson for us in that? Well, the promised land, let me just clarify this for everybody. The promised land in the Old Testament is not a picture of heaven. The promised land is a picture of the victorious Christian life. And the reason that is, is because they had to go in and fight for it and work for it. And we do not have to work for our salvation. And so this, this, the promised land is a beautiful picture of what, where God wants us to be in our Christian life. And so the message and the, the lesson for us in that is, if you give up hope, if you stop believing in God to help you, if you start living a life of complaining and then guess what? You'll live a life of mental and emotional wandering in the wilderness. You'll spend your life just wandering around, waiting to die. And I would hate that for you. I would hate that for you. I would hate that for anybody to spend their existence in this life just wandering around when you could have hope, when you could be in the promised land with a certainty about your future and happiness and a joy that God wants to give you. So that first option, that option, when something crashes into the boat, that first option is off the table. We're not going to complain. We're not going to doubt God. We're not going to be, live in fear. Worry is off the table. You know, there's two things you're not supposed to worry, two categories of things you're not supposed to worry about. Adrian Rogers said this. The first category of things you're not supposed to worry about is things you can do something about. If you can do something about it, then go do it, and don't worry about it. The other, the other category of things is things you can't do anything about. You're not supposed to worry about that either, because guess what? You can't do anything about it. So the best thing, he said, you could possibly say about worry is that it's useless. And it is. So that's off the table. Let's reject hopelessness. Let's reject fear. Let's reject unbelief. And let's go after these four biblical things that I'm about to share with you. And these four things will produce strong hope deep in our soul, a certainty about the future that helps us, uh, helps us with any issue that comes along, any storm. It's like an anchor for our soul, and we won't blow away. Number one, 
And these are all Bible things that show us how to get hope. Number one is this, lay hold of what you already have. Lay hold of what you already have. Every Christian, every person who has put, placed their faith in Jesus Christ has hope in them. And sometimes we just simply need to lay hold of what you already possess, whatever is already in front of you. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter said, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is telling us that when you place your faith in Christ, you are born again. You're begotten again. That word means that God has birthed you again. He's made you a whole new person, a whole new creation. And with that, with now being a brand new person, comes a lively or a living hope. Now, why is it called lively or why is it called living hope? The reason it's called living hope is because it never dies. When you read this tomorrow in 1 Peter chapter 1, the hope is still going to be living. When you read it next year, the hope is still going to be living. No matter when you read this, it's alive. The hope is alive. The born-again Christian has a never-dying certainty about his future. You have a living hope. It's a certainty that you, that God has got you covered. Your ultimate future is in the hands of God, and you are fine, and nothing can kill this hope. And it says that this hope hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus were still in the tomb, then this is all a non this is a non-issue. You should not have even showed up today, honestly. If Jesus didn't come out of the tomb, then we do not have a living hope. But we do, and he did. Jesus defeated death, and that means you will be raised too. The resurrection is the basis of your hope. And and just to make sure that you know that God won't get tired of you and that this promise that he made isn't going away, here is what Peter says next in verse 4. Here's where you're going. To an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. See, it's an inheritance. You know, if, if, you, if you were to get an inheritance from your parents or your rich uncle, oh, that, that could be lost. Potentially, there's a chance. Uh, somebody could protest it in court. It could drop in value. Uh, there's a lot of things that could happen to earthly inheritances. But this heavenly inheritance, God says, has several features. Number one, it's incorruptible. That means it can never corrode. It can never crack. It can never decay. Undefiled, the word means the inheritance is in perfect condition. There's no defilement in this, in this uh, inheritance. Number three, it says it fadeth not away. That means it can never suffer variation in value or glory or defilement. And then it says it's reserved in heaven for you. There are no loopholes in the inheritance laws of God. No one's going to take your inheritance. It is guaranteed to be there for you. Now, that's your future if you're born again. That's what God says. You have this already. It's in you. But now let me challenge you with something. You as a believer now need to lay hold of that of what you already have. Remember our theme passage last week, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 and 19, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation or a comfort 
who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul or of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Yes, we have this hope, but we need to lay hold on it with all of our might. I mentioned Adrian Rogers. One of the great things he, he has said many times as I've listened to his messages, he said, you know, the problem for many Christians is that we don't possess our possessions. We don't possess our possessions. We walk around defeated in our minds because we're not fully embracing this certainty that God has given to every believer. But to lay hold of something, everybody, listen, you've got to let go of whatever you're holding right now. If you're going to lay hold of this hope that God has set before you, and I mean really lay your, put your faith, all of your faith in this, you have to let go of whatever, whatever you have in your hand right now, whatever you're believing. I'm challenging right, right now to let go of the things that you're believing about the future and believe instead what God says. Stop doubting God. There is more than enough proof to trust him. Stop believing what your dad said or your mom said. Stop believing what your professor said. Stop believing what yourself says. Stop believing the spirit of fear. Stop. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we listen to ourselves too much when we should be speaking to ourselves. Preaching the word of God to ourselves, he said. See, everybody, everybody's going to lo lose hope if you start listening to what someone else is saying. Many years ago, there was a small town in the state of Maine, and it, it disappeared under the, under the waves because a utility company had come in and said, we're going to build a dam on, uh, at, at the river, and the flooding started in 1949, but it took three years to completely submerge the homes, the streets, and all the memories of people. But when the utility company, um, before they were going to uh, build this dam, they came into this town and said, listen, folks, we're building a huge dam down there. The water's going to come back. It's going to back up. It's going to fill this entire valley. You're everything. This whole town is going to be underwater. You have to move. We'll buy your home, uh, and you'll get top dollar, but you're going to have to get out of here. But it won't be for a while. So about a year after the utility company bought all the properties, then there was a writer who revisited his old childhood home there. He went back to see the place after a year of this, uh, all this going on. And he noticed that many of the residents still hadn't quite moved away yet. They were still waiting for this water to come, but he saw a remarkable change in the town. It used to be a nice, charming neighborhood, tidy homes, beautiful fenced yards, well-kept, but now it was just a dilapidated ghost town. Uh, wh why why fix a fence if the whole place is going to be destroyed in a little while? Why do anything? Why fix a window? Why fix a pothole? It was just trashed. And then he penned, this is what he said. This is a, a, just an amazing little summary line. He said, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. I'm afraid that many Christians are living with no power right now in the present because there is, there is no faith in the future. They've just given up. There's just no, I don't know if God can do this. I don't know. I have all my doubts and uh, what if this and what if that and what if this and what if that and, and I'm worried and I'm fearful. 
They haven't fully grabbed hold of this thing. They haven't fully believed what God has said. You have a hope. So maybe some of you this morning just need to lay hold of hope that you already have. Don't sit on the sidelines and get in the game. Now others may need this next one, number two. And that is pray until God opens your eyes. Pray until God opens your eyes. Now, this point is going to be a very spiritual point. And so I'm, it's going to be challenging, and it's going to challenge all of our spirits here. Your spiritual language, listen. Hope is a spiritual thing. It's something that God gives, and therefore it comes through a spiritual pipeline. Prayer is essential to having strong hope. Let me share what I mean. One of the things I love to do, if, if, you ever, if you get a chance, and if I get a chance, is to pray with men and women who have spiritual power. I'm talking about older believers who I can sense that just have a genuine closeness to God. You know, they said about the disciples in the New Testament, the, there's something about them, they have been with Jesus. There's something about praying with somebody you know who's just been with Jesus. But imagine how amazing it would be if we could listen and be with the Apostle Paul when he prayed. Imagine if you could sit in the room there, sit right next to the Apostle Paul as he began to pray for people. Now this man who was used to write the bulk of the New Testament, I'm, I, I just, I, uh, when I think of that, my mind, uh, my mind just is, i just so amazed by what, what I would imagine that would be like. Well, here's the amazing thing. We actually have some of his prayers. One of them is in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul here is writing to good, faithful believers in the city of Ephesus, and he reveals to them what he's been praying for them when he's alone with God. So you can guarantee that what we're about to see is something that very, that's very important, what he thinks is very important to pray for somebody, for some Christian. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Wherefore, he says, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... And love unto all the saints. So let's stop right here real quick. We notice that these people were people of faith and love. Good people, good Christians here. Paul says, I've heard about your faith and your love. Verse 16. I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. <laughs> the great apostle Paul is mentioning these precious believers in his prayers. How would you like to get a letter saying, uh, from Paul saying, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. That would be sweet. And here's what he prays for them. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now notice here, he's praying for God to give them something. Not that they would work up something in themselves. This, whatever he's praying for here, it has to come from God. It's the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this is a prayer for the Holy Spirit that's already indwelling them to give them understanding that they've never had before, to open their eyes, that, he, that they would know God in deeper ways than they ever have before. And he continues, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul says, I'm praying for you that your eyes would be open, your eyes would be enlightened, 
He's asking God to flip on the light switch for these precious believers. They are good people. They are full of faith. They have love. They're good believers, but they need some clarity. They need, they need something from the Lord. They need a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and, and enlightening of the eyes that they would see the hope of their calling. He wants every believer to deeply grasp the certainty of what God has called the believer to. From your salvation, the moment you're saved, all the way until glorification, till you get to heaven, that, that moment, he wants you to see the hope of this. He wants you to be filled with the certainty of this. Paul sensed that they needed that clearer certainty about the future. Now, this certain hope is, is about our ultimate future. It's not something that we wake up one day and just say, you know, I'm deciding that I want to know something about my future. And I, oh, now I just know it. And now I just have it. God has to open our spiritual eyes to see things that he sees and he knows. And by praying, Paul is saying, I'm praying for God to do this. By praying, Paul is showing us that this comes through prayer. I'm afraid that the reason many Christians will live in fear and misery is because they've never done the spiritual work of seeking God until he finally opens their spiritual eyes to what they have coming. See, you may need to keep praying. Listen, you may need to keep praying. You may need to do business with God. You may need to go in and get alone and seek God and keep praying until your understanding of the future is so clear that you then see how it outweighs anything that you're going through right now. See, Paul, Paul was totally convinced about his future in Christ when he wrote this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. He said this, For I reckon, that means I count on it, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So here's what I'm saying this morning. Here's what I'm trying to get all of us to do. I'm saying that we need to pray until this thought takes over, until you realize that everything that you've really wanted is, is coming in the future because of Christ, that you're one of the millions who, of saints who will be with Jesus, that anything you go through here is only temporary, and it will only make you enjoy heaven more when you get there, that God is working everything for your good, and you keep praying and you keep seeking the Lord until you, until those thoughts until you know that the future is settled and I'm going with him until that thought so hits you that it pulverizes anything that you're going through right now. Until no longer are you holding on to these fears and worries and stuff, and the stuff that you're so anxious about. You get with the Lord, you get close-knit to him, and then the clarity starts to come. We're talking about a change of perspective here. From our perspective to God's perspective, it's like going from a child's perspective to an adult's perspective. What if you could see with God's eyes your situation in your life? Many, many times, listen, everybody, I, this is something that I learned early on from my dad. You need to get alone with God. If, if you're going through something, if something's happening, if you, need a, if you need a word from the Lord, you better get alone with God somewhere. So I now have a few places that I go. I'm not going to tell you where they are because I don't want you to steal them and come and show up when I'm out there by myself. But I go out there and I just meet with the Lord and I say, Lord, I need you. I need you to speak to me on this. I open the word of God. Sometimes I'll listen to a little bit of music and then I just sit in the quiet and start to pray. And I'll do a walk and ask the Lord, Lord, speak to me. And friends, let me tell you something. I have notebooks full of God just speaking to my heart where clarity started to come. 
just be, things I begin to see that I hadn't seen before. God just clears the fog. And all of a sudden, it's God speaking. I see with whole new eyes. I see my problem in, totally, in a totally different perspective. I see the issues around me in a totally different perspective. This is a spiritual exercise, I'm telling you. If you're going to have hope, if you're going to have a certainty about the future, if you're going to be settled on this, Paul says, I'm praying that you'll get that. I'm praying that you'll get that. You, God needs to give it to you. You've got to get alone with the Lord. This whole thing, you know, when, when God changes your eyes and you see with his eyes, it's amazing. It reminds me of one of my favorite Old Testament stories. Elisha is the prophet of Israel to God's people. Israel's enemy is Syria, uh, and Syria wanted to attack Israel, very much like today. <laughs> So the Syrian king tells his servants, listen, go set up camp over in this area near, <coughs> near Israel, and we're going to be strategic there, and we're going to have an ambush attack. So they set up their camp. Well, Elisha, the prophet, tells the king of Israel, hey, just to let you know, they set up camp over in this area. I know nobody here knows about it, but God told me that this is where the enemy has set up camp. And what do you know? They were ready for them, and uh, they could not take them by surprise. Well, <clears throat> this whole little situation happened, the Bible says, not once or twice. It happened several times. And so every time, uh, God, God would spoil their plans through the prophet. And one of the servants, the king of Syria, finally went to one of them. What's going on? We're going on a, a hunt to find the mole. And our, whoever's telling our secrets, get them. And the servant told him, it's, it's not anybody here. It, it's, it's the prophet over there in Israel. God's telling him, and then they know. God tell, and this is what he said. God tells him what you say in your bedchamber. God knows everything that we say anytime, any place. And God tells him everything that you say. And so the king says, all right, naturally, the only thing left to do then, if that's how this is going to go down, uh, this is not an inside job, it's an upside job, so this is going to be kind of tough. So basically what we're going to have to do is just take out Elisha. That's the natural thing to do, right? Right, okay, so send an army. And here's where we pick up the story, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 14. Therefore, sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, a huge army. And they came by night and compassed the city about. Look at that, a huge army with chariots and horses and all that to take down one prophet. <laughs> Good luck. Verse 15, and when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, and host huge army compassed the city with both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? He was scared. And, you know, we say, what shall we do? But he said, how shall we do? <laughs> That's interesting. Verse 16, and he answered, fear not. Fear not. So relaxed, not taken off guard, <laughs> not, not at all disturbed by the fact that there's a huge army outside ready to kill him. Fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And um, this servant had to be, I just saying, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're even saying right now. Verse 17, and Elisha prayed. This has to come from God. God, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for you to do something right now. And said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And what did he see? And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. <laughs> and 
hey, yes, the army's big, but our army is bigger. And it's a, it's, it's a chariot, it's chariots of fire. They're not just little baby chariots. These are chariots of fire. And let me tell you something, we've got this, and I am not worried. When our eyes, when we start to see with God's perspective, everything changes. God opened his eyes. If you're living in fear, if you're living in anxiety, if you're living in despair, you need to see with new eyes. It's a spiritual thing, and therefore it comes through a spiritual pipeline. You need to go to the Lord. You need to ask, Lord, I need you. Until, until Lord, you break through and help all this, until this just pulverizes all these thoughts that I have going on in my head. Number three, number three, learn the scriptures. If you're going to have hope, if we're going to have hope all the way to the end, have strong hope, then you have to learn the scriptures. The more you learn the scriptures, the more hope you will have. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, he's talking about the scriptures. Paul's writing and said, all those things were written before this were written for our learning. That's why God wrote them, that you would learn them. Why? That we, through patience or endurance and comfort of the scriptures, might have what? Hope. God put hope into words so that you could study and learn them. And they are called the scriptures. The Bible is a book of hope. The entire thing. Paul was specifically talking about the Old Testament here. Every word, every law, every prophecy, every story, every teaching, every single part of the Bible is infused with hope. The main storyline is about hope for mankind through Jesus Christ. Man was created perfect. He sinned. That's Genesis 3. That all happens in the first three chapters. And then it starts immediately with a prophecy about the coming Savior right there in Genesis chapter 3. And the rest of the Bible, the entire thing, is about God bringing hope for mankind through this Jesus. Through a little nation in the Middle East, he chooses to send his promises to the world. Through that Jewish line, he sends his son who will pay for the sins of mankind. And then this, this man will come. He will rise again. He will secure a home in heaven for all those who believe. That message then spreads all over the world. And they start planting churches. And they keep going until Jesus comes back and takes you to heaven. That's the Bible. And it is full of hope. Hope is on every page. In fact, listen, God cannot write a hopeless book because there is no hopelessness in God. One of my favorite things is that, that God puts in true stories of how he worked in the lives of real people. I love this. I love that God did this for us so that by the comfort of the scriptures, we and everybody who's reading it and everybody who's learning it would have hope. Noah's family being saved from the flood, hope. Exodus out of Egypt, hope. Joshua and Jericho, hope. The Red Sea, hope. Gideon's army, hope. David and Goliath, hope. Fiery furnace, hope. Hope is everywhere. And all of these stories, by the way, this is why I love telling as many Bible stories from the Old Testament, especially to young children as I possibly can. We, uh, when we talk about it in our children's ministry and we talk about the things we should, we should teach and, and what we should do, we always say, listen, just keep hammering the stories in the Old Testament home. Hammer them, hammer them, hammer them because 
children, first of all, love stories. And those are the things that are going to lodge in their brains and that they will remember someday when they're an adult and they're going through something and they need, to, they need some insight. They, they need to know what to do in this situation and they will remember what God did for somebody, for some real person in a very similar situation and that God is always a winner. Psalm 145 and verse 4, one generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I love this verse because it says, one generation shall pray not, praise not thy word, even though it is his word, but his works, what he did, what God did in the lives of people. Parents, teachers, do not neglect telling the true Bible accounts of God's mighty acts, of the works that God did in people's lives. Because when they get older, they'll think of that Bible story. It will coincide with the situation that they're going through, and they'll know God can do something about this. Adults need this too, amen? We need this. We need to remember that God has never lost one battle. He has never lost one battle. And the more you read, the more, more scripture you get in you, the more you learn everything that God has written in his word, the more you realize God is a winner. He is not a loser. Even though our football team, the Denver Broncos, continues to lose, and there's probably no hope for them. That's fine, Okay. But listen, God never loses. Never, 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 never. When you see God's power in the scriptures, listen, the more you read the scriptures, listen to me now. I cannot see one reason why a child of God would feel hopeless. I see, oh, when you just read it and read it and read it, not one. I do not see one reason for us to just throw in the towel. He never says, God never says, okay, folks, now it's time to give up because that particular situation is beyond my ability. That one is too tough. Nope. Why do we act like victims? Now, listen, you might be a victim of some sin or even a crime against you, but we never have to be a victim of hopelessness, ever, ever. God always, always, always offers hope to people. But God may not do a big miracle for me like he did in there. Now, there's a great story in the Gospel of Mark about four men. They brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. He couldn't do anything. He was racked with pain and paralyzed on there. And, and the people were all crowding into the room shoulder to shoulder. They could not get their friend in there. So they went up on top. The Bible says they went on the roof, they opened up the roof, they cut out a spot, and then they let him right down in the room where Jesus was. And Jesus healed that man. Now listen, those men that carried their friend to Jesus and got him in there, they did not cause the miracle. That's God's job. God, Jesus can do the miracle or he cannot do the miracle. That is his decision. But these guys, these friends, had enough faith to get their friend close to Jesus, and perhaps it would trigger a miracle. And that's how we need to live. In fact, there's no better way to live. Believe God, trust him, pray, bring my situation to him, get it close to him, and maybe he'll just work a miraculous miracle. And, and, and that, that, let's be in the place where it could trigger a miracle. But he's the one who causes the miracle. And if he doesn't do it in that moment, then guess what? you have the promise of a future miracle. You also have the promise, as Paul said, of his grace that's with you every single day, no matter the thorn in your side. 
So learn the scriptures, read the scriptures, sing the scriptures, hear the scriptures, study the scriptures, listen to scriptural preaching, meditate on the scriptures. If you, that's what, if you have, if you go to the scriptures, if you learn the scriptures, you will have hope. Do this for hope. And lastly, this is, and this one is a reality check, everybody, but stick with me here. If you're going to have stronger hope, you have to go through tribulation faithfully. If you're going to have a strong hope, you have to go through tribulation faithfully. This is what God says here. To have a deep-seated, unwavering certainty in the future, you're going to have to face some hard stuff here and, here and now. And you're going to have to do it while holding on to Jesus. People, listen, people without problems can't build strong spiritual muscles. There's no way around this. So thanks for the good news, Pastor Luke. Appreciate that. I got the, got the tribulation thing going on. But hang in there. It turns out, really, this, the saying, no pain, no gain, is, is legitimate here. Here's what God says, Romans chapter 5. Listen. I'm going to work into it because this is good stuff. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is great so far. This is so good. Justified by faith. I am declared righteous in heaven. That's what justified means. That is good news. And then it says to top it off, you have peace with God. Listen, there's nothing sweeter than that right now than peace with God. Number Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope of heaven here, the glory of God. Man, I am loving this, Paul. Keep writing, buddy. This is good. And verse three, and not only so. Oh, this is gonna be good. What's he gonna say next? This is gonna be so good, Paul. Already it's been blowing me away with good stuff. But then he says, but we glory in tribulations also. Whoa, whoa. Did you just say what I think you just said, Paul? We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. You read that right. This says that a Christian can not only endure tribulation, but he, he or she can be in a place in their life, and in their heart, and their mind, where they glory in tribulation. Now, that seems so unnatural. It seems so crazy. I can't even hardly believe it's true. How in the world could we actually praise God for hard times and difficulties and pain? Well, the reason we can, he explains, is because tribulation produces hope through something that I'll call this morning a hope cycle. It's like a wash cycle for your clothes. You know, if you're going to get your clothes clean, you've got to put them in the washing machine. They've got to get turned over. They've got to get bounced. They've got to get agitated. They've got to get thrown all over the place. The more tossed around your clothes get, the cleaner they get. And this is what can happen to you and to me when you get put into the hope cycle. Look how God describes it. The word tribulation is the Greek word thilpis. It means pressure. All kinds of pressure that presses on the Christian. And if we could, uh, you know, put it in today's um, world, we would maybe call it like a pressure cooker. God 
might allow you to go into the pressure cooker of life. And when a pressure cooker is going, that heat inside that pressure cooker is transforming the inner properties of what you're cooking. And God is allowing the pressure of your life, the stuff that's going on and happening to you, to transform the inner properties of who you are. He's trying to change you. He's trying to do something in you that, that only he can do. But he's going to have to put you through the pressure cooker first. And at that point, if we get God's strength to face it, and we take that next step with him, faithfully holding on through the pressure, then what God's going to give next is patience, he says. Patience or endurance or perseverance. The Greek word is hupomone. It means more than just endurance. It means more than just passive endurance, just letting the, letting the, the, water, letting the wheel just roll right over me. What it means is, is actively overcoming a trial. It's getting in the face. Some people might say you're taking problems by the throat. You're not letting it come on you. You're facing it foot forward, taking it by the throat and saying, no, you're not going to get me. And that's what God can give you. William Barclay says, it isn't the spirit which lies down and let, lets the floods go over it. It is the spirit which meets things chest forward and overcomes them. So once you're taking problems by the throat, you're trusting the Lord, you're keeping your eyes on him, then comes, then God gives experience. This is the Greek word dokime, and it means character. Character. This word is used of metal when it's been put into the fire and so that everything gets purged from it. In other words, God has used tribulation now to change you for the better. You're now a purer, stronger person than you used to be. And now, because of this purity in you and because all this stuff that God has worked out of you, now you're more effective with other people. Now you're more useful to him. Now you can do something for him. God has used the heat to remove all those impurities. And when you come out of it, he says he gives hope. And that is that joyful certainty that your future is going to be fine and you're just filled with this hope. Nothing can shake you. Nothing can get to you. Nothing. I'm so, I'm so thankful for what God's done. I'm so thankful for my future. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do your best, devil. That's what strong, people of strong hope can say. Henry Martin said this. I love this. I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. That's a guy who gets it. I am immortal. I am invincible until God's done with me. And that's how a Christian lives. I'm not afraid. I'm not going to live afraid. And that's the attitude of a Christian who has hope. I end with this, back to the boat with my kids. We spent an entire day on the lake that day tubing. And, of course, as the driver, dad, I was trying to give them a wild and fun ride on those tubes. These are big boys, you know, so I got I to gotta shake up their life a little bit. But I... And, but I had the power of life and death in, their, in, my, in my hands. I had the, the ability literally to decimate their bodies depending on the speed and the technique I used out there. But I'm also dead, and I love them. So I'm not there, there to obliterate them. So I had to keep in balance this whole thing in my mind of pushing their boundaries a little bit, but not killing them. <laughs> and... And so as it was going through early on, we kind of came up in the boat with a little number system, one to five. 
And before you get out on the tube, you got to tell dad what level you want. What kind of thrill ride do you want? Do you want a level one or do you want a level five? And they would tell me their numbers. And I would try to stick pretty close to their numbers. I'd push it a little bit, of course. But I noticed something as the day went on. The guys who started with just low numbers, pretty soon their numbers started going up. They could handle more. The next time they could do it without fear. The first time it was pretty fearful, but the, the next time it could handle it with no problem. Now, some of them did tell me, you know, Dad, don't hold back. And so I flung that kid into the ne you know, next lake over, <laughs> still looking for that guy. But, but, but at the core of all of this, at the core of everything that was happening that day, uh, it was just a neat thought for me. All the stuff that was going on, I'm giving them a ride, and they're, they're having a good time. But the core of all of this, but the only reason that they had the confidence to keep jumping out on that tube was the fact that they trusted the guy driving the boat. They knew this guy wasn't going to kill them. Dad would not let them die. He would give them a ride, but they were certain that Dad was holding their future. Listen, God is driving your boat. He is driving your boat. He's got it. And you can trust him a whole lot more than you can trust this dad. God knows you. He, know, he knows, and he is not out to kill you. He's not trying to make your life miserable. He's trying to produce something better in you. And he might push you a little bit. He might push the boundaries to a little bit past your comfort zone, past where you feel you can handle. But he's getting you to a place where you can increase so that he can give you greater hope and you can take on the next problem and the next problem and the next problem and you can be a giver of hope to many. This is, the, this, is, this is the thing that God has for us and this is why we have to go through tribulation. He wants to make us stronger. That's our God. Would you please bow your head? And we hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.